Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Therapists in the Wild. We want to welcome our new listeners and tell you how glad we are to have you. To those of you who are new here, we are two therapists in the last year of our clinical psychology doctoral program. The goal of this podcast is to teach dialectical behavior therapy skills and discuss practical applications of the skills using examples from our own lives as well as to you know discuss the treatment generally. And we also just want to say as a reminder, like we did a couple weeks ago, we are going to be answering, we're going to be continuing to answer listener questions on the podcast every few weeks or so. So please keep on sending us those emails. Yes, we have been loving your emails, so please keep them coming. We do just want to give a quick disclaimer um, that we just can't respond to any individual questions related to your personal circumstances. Yeah. So kind of general questions are totally fine and we're happy to answer them. Um, but we can't respond to those personal questions. That would just be unethical because we're not your therapist and we don't have all the kind of information that we would need to really be able to respond thoughtfully and give you an adequate answer that would actually be helpful to you. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm really glad you said that. And you know, please though, keep the general questions about DBT and the skills we cover, keep them coming. Um, we love seeing them. Again, our email address is therapistsinthewild at gmail.com. And if you're liking the podcast, we hope you'll consider leaving us a quick rating or review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're using. And really the reason for this is because we want to keep reaching as many people as possible who need these skills or could benefit from them. And leaving a review or rating just helps continue to grow our listener base. Yes. And thank you so much to everyone who's already done that. We appreciate it. We really do. Yeah. Okay. So let's get into our homework review now. How did it, how did it go for you this week, Liza? So our homework was to practice awareness of emotions and labeling our emotions to ourselves. And I wanted to share, it's maybe a bit of an unconventional homework practice. <laughs> I have implemented a new daily practice in my life that I hope will be helpful to listeners. I think it really relates to being mindfully aware of how you're feeling in the moment. And it kind of relates to the life design concept we were talking about last week, how, you know, where if you're fortunate enough to, like I am, to have control over things like what your job is and what your relationships are, that it's really helpful, especially in a, in a time like this in our world, to be really... Um, intentional about how you're spending your time and your life. And so I've been keeping a list of just how I feel after different activities that I do, kind of what lights me up versus what dims me down. Um, and I'm just kind of collecting data on myself. And, you know, if after a particularly exciting meeting, I write down that that lit me up and maybe over time I'll start to notice that I really enjoy those types of meetings and that type of work or, you know, something like that. And, and similar to my relationships and my free time. And I, I'm just, I'm, I'm finding it really useful to kind of be more intentional through labeling my emotions about really how I want to spend my time. That's so interesting. I've never heard of that as a strategy, but 
it makes a lot of sense. Like it kind of requires you to have a certain level of awareness of what your emotions are throughout the day to yeah. be able to kind of know what you want to jot down in terms of what, what you want to do more of, what lights you up versus what you, what you don't want to do more of. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of what you talked about last time about how one of the defining features of borderline personality disorder, you know, and something that a lot of people struggle with is some kind of identity confusion. Like, what do I, what do I want to do? Who am I? And so I think an exercise like this can be really helpful if you don't know what your goals are in life. Um, or maybe if you're at a transition point and you're looking for something new, uh, just kind of, like I said, like tracking data, I guess it's kind of a yeah, it's, way to put it, but it's, it's kind of just a helpful way to take stock, um, without like forcing it too much. Mm -hmm. I love that. So, and just to get a sense of what that practice actually has looked like for you. So maybe some of our listeners, if they want to try it on their own, do you kind of just have like a, a notebook or a journal and you just jot down like what the activity was itself or do you put any other information in the journal as well? Yeah. So I'm, I am very digital these days. I, I wish I was better at writing in a journal. It's on my computer <laughs> desktop. I'm using those sticky notes and I have one color for lights me up and the other color for dims me down. And I just write <laughs> a little bit about the activity and then I try to name at least one emotion that I felt during that, you know, hour or activity. Cool. Yeah. I love that. Okay. Maybe I'll start doing that too. I think that's a great idea. Thank you. All right. What, uh, what about you? What was, what was it like for you to be more aware of and label your emotions this week? So my example, not as, maybe not as fun as yours. That's the judgment. <laughs> <laughs> I, for me, what I noticed, I've been, uh, I started a new job recently and so have been kind of at the computer all day, pretty much in this yeah. virtual world. Yeah. And I've started to notice that sometimes when I'm getting emails and texts and IMs and all these things coming in at once, I start to feel really overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. And I think prior to last week's episode, I kind of hadn't been that aware of when that was happening in the moment. Mm -hmm. And so the episode reminded me <laughs> to be aware of these different components of, uh, of, of the emotion of anxiety or stress or whatever it is that I'm feeling. And so I kind of tried to identify, tried to break down the different components for myself and um, identified, you know, the prompting event or common cues that lead me to feel this way. Hmm. So I noticed, um, I noticed that sometimes I'll have the, I'll have the thought, like, I don't, I don't even know what to do next. Mm -hmm. And when I have that thought, that's like a cue to myself. Okay. I'm probably starting to feel pretty overwhelmed right now. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And then we talked last week, I know we talked about interpretations that that can kind of be part of this, uh, that can be a component of emotions as well. And so maybe I'll have interpretations about what it means about me that I do feel overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. So some like judgment towards myself for that. Yeah. Um, I think the part that's been the most helpful is when I recognize the physical sensations, like the muscle tension and just kind of like shallow breathing and a tightness in my chest. Yeah. Um, Sounds like you are really slowing down the moment, whereas before you weren't. And so all of a sudden you went from zero to really overwhelmed 
And so by breaking it down into the component parts, you're not only naming your emotions, I would imagine there's some other positive effects that are happening. Absolutely. I, I think it's been really helpful because it almost interrupts the process yeah. when I can slow it down and it gives me multiple opportunities to change the course of events. Hmm. So if I catch myself maybe at the interpretations, then I can kind of question my thoughts. Like, does that, is that really mean that I'm incompetent or whatever the story I'm telling myself is like, is that really true? Um, or if I catch myself at the physical sensation part, then I can try to practice some opposite action, which is a skill we'll get to and yeah. try to, um, you know, kind of breathe and relax my body posture. Yeah. So, or even like when it comes to the urges, like I have a lot of urges to avoid when I feel overwhelmed. And so I can, again, like try to practice once I'm aware that this is going on, responding differently. So it's been really helpful. It's, and I'm, it's definitely something I'm going to continue to keep practicing. Yeah. This sounds this sounds like a really effective response, especially to starting a new job, which it can be so easy to just be in such a frenzy that you don't take time to slow down the moment. And then that leads to problems. Um, mm -hmm. it, it makes me think you, you said, you started to say, you know, I'm, I was noticing fear. I was noticing anxiety. I was noticing like kind of more specific parts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, and I, do, do you think that was helpful too, rather than just like, I feel overwhelmed generally? Yes. I think it was helpful to identify the, like, to, are you saying like, was it helpful to put a label on it? Like mm -hmm. to name exactly. that specific emotion? Exactly. Yes, I think so. I think so. Because you respond differently to different emotions. Mm -hmm. And so like, if maybe what I was feeling was frustration, then I need it. I need something different when I feel frustrated than when, when I feel anxious. Yeah. So, um, I think it helps you figure out it's, it's definitely helped me figure out like how, what's the most effective way for me to respond. Yeah. It's like, I'm, I'm having a very visual experience right now where I'm thinking of the word overwhelmed as this like massive tornado that rips through a town and there's nothing you can do to stop it. Whereas if you slow down and rather than I feel overwhelmed and everything's out of control, it's like, no, actually what I feel is some frustration, some anger, and then it becomes much more manageable. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. Yeah. Well, I think this segues really nicely into our topic of the day, which is similar to kind of an extension of what we talked about last week. We're basically going to help you build your own emotion playbooks, kind of like Molly was just referencing, by breaking down the components of different emotions. And what we're going to focus specifically on today is the emotion of shame, as an example, because it's one that, you know, in our work with clients, in our own lives, with friends, just kind of everyone, it can cause a lot of problems if we don't accurately label it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk about talk about shame with you all. And so, and kind of like we talked about last week, just being able to identify these different components of an emotion is really the first step in terms of regulating your emotions. We need to kind of do that detective work to figure out what we're feeling yeah. um, in order to then put a label on it, like Liza was saying, as I was going over my homework. And then once we kind of figure out what we're feeling, label it, then we can decide how, do we, how we want to respond to it. 
Yes, exa exactly. So once you become familiar with your own playbook, meaning what does it look like for you when you experience this emotion? What are your urges? How do you usually respond to that emotion, maybe in ways that have been problematic in the past? Once you do all of that, you can more quickly and easily identify the emotion you're experiencing, choose which skill to use next. And again, the skills that you're gonna use next, we will be teaching over the course of the next couple episodes. So today, instead of focusing on why it's important to notice and label your emotions, like it's kind of what we did last week, this week we're gonna help you get better at identifying which emotion you're experiencing so that you actually can put that label on the emotion. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, it's easy to say I'm upset or I'm overwhelmed, but we're going to help you get more specific by saying, I feel scared. I feel frustrated. And that's going to help you regulate that emotion more effectively. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Again, it's like the, the overwhelmed tornado um, isn't as effective as breaking it down into what you're actually, what the emotions actually are. Mm -hmm. So before we get into talking about shame specifically, we just kind of want to point out that human beings experience a range of emotions. And, you know, you've probably learned a lot of different words to describe how you're feeling throughout your life. We're really going to talk about the main ones, at least as DBT thinks about them, which are anger, disgust, envy, happiness, jealousy, love, sadness, guilt, shame, and fear. <laughs> All right, say that five times fast. <laughs> it's a lot. It's a lot of emotions. And there are so many more. Um, but to kind of use an analogy, like maybe you're thinking, oh, well, where's the word frustration or frustrated? Where's the word embarrassed? You know, things like that. And, you know, just if, if you're a visual person, maybe this could help. Imagine that the word emotion was like the word fruit. And then each of the other emotions is like, you know, an apple, a berry, a pear. Even within those categories, there are different types of apples or pears, right? So under the anger category, there's frustration, irritability, annoyance. Those are kind of under that umbrella category of anger. And yeah, so there's sort of like the umbrella, then all of the different ways to describe the emotion that fits under it. And we're going to kind of talk about the main emotions that we just described above. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that analogy. And it makes me want an apple. <laughs> <laughs> me too. Uh, okay. So each of the emotions that Liza just talked about consists of different components. So we've referenced this a couple of times, but I'll just um, say it more clearly here. The different components of an emotion are the prompting event, so that's what, what caused it in the first place, mm -hmm. interpretations that you're experiencing, so that might be like thoughts, yeah. biological changes, so what you're feeling in your body and what's changing inside, mm -hmm. your expressions and your actions, so what do you do in response to that emotion, and then the after effects, which we'll get into later. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a really helpful way to break it down. And let's just go through a quick example to identify the components. And let's just use the example of fear to kind of hammer this point home. Um, so just to start out, like what, what can we think of that might be an event that would prompt the emotion of fear? 
One I think that a lot of people can probably relate to is when it's like summer and you're stuck in a subway underground. Whew. I have not been on a subway in so long and that just made me have a physical reaction. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a okay. pretty terrifying feeling. So terrifying. Okay, so that's the prompting event. And then we can think of some interpretations that you might have really pretty automatically. You're not choosing to have these interpretations. They just sort of pop into your head. And so one might be, I'm going to suffocate. I'm going to die. I'm going to faint. Something like mm -hmm. that. I'm not going to, I can't handle this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like really, it sounds like really catastrophizing interpretations about mm -hmm. the worst case scenario. Yes, definitely. Definitely. In terms of bodily experiences. So what's hap what's changing in your body as a result of being stuck in a subway underground and having those thoughts that you might suffocate or die there, you might experience breathlessness, muscle tension, increased heart rate, things like that. Yeah. So that's kind of what might be going on internally. And then similarly going on internally might be some urges that you might be having. So I know if I am stuck in a subway underground, I might have the urge to escape, to tear open the doors, to scream something like that. Um, and it's important to note that an urge is different from the actual action that you take because an urge might be something that you can't control, whereas an action you can control, right? You can choose whether or not to act on that urge. Um, so Molly, if, if you have the urge to scream, tear open the doors, escape, what, what might the actions actually be? I mean, probably because it's not socially acceptable to do that <laughs> you know you, you might possible. the doors might not open <laughs> <laughs> yes instead you know i might if if i had cell service i might text someone like a lot of times for reassurance mm, yeah um, me too might start crying mm -hmm. um or like looking around really quickly kind of like darting your eyes trying to see if there's any way that you could possibly escape mm-hmm mm -hmm. Yeah, all, all great examples. And then, and then we think about the after effects. So what happens as a result of that process? And, you know, in the immediate term, I know after experiences like that, I usually feel pretty exhausted. You know, maybe I'm in a bad mood. And then there are some longer term consequences potentially, like maybe you might avoid subways in the future. You know, you might kind of get claustrophobic and avoid enclosed spaces altogether. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, I like that you made that distinction between kind of like the shorter term after effects versus the long, long term after effects. Yeah. So yeah, so that example was kind of just to show you what the different components of an emotion are. And you could break any emotion down, any emotion that you experience, you could break it down into those components. And again, this is to help you slow down when you're experiencing an emotion so that you can do something about it before you act in a way that is ineffective. So for this episode, we're going to focus on shame specifically, because as we mentioned last week, shame doesn't really get talked about much in our society, mm -hmm. doesn't get taught much to kids. Nope. And I think I've, I've observed that it's often very inaccurately labeled for people. People don't often know that what they're feeling is shame when that's actually what they are feeling. 
So, and kind of not, not accurately labeling your emotions causes problems. So right. we're going to try to help you f- be able to understand how this emotion shows up for you better through this episode. Yeah. I, I love what you said about how incorrectly identifying it can lead to problems. So it's, it's important to get to know the emotion a little bit better today. So first to do that, let's kind of start off by talking about when people are most likely to feel shame. So what, what do you think, Molly? What are, some, what are some common culprits where shame shows up? I think shame really shows up when people feel like other people are going to reject them in some way. Mm. It's, it's, which makes a lot of sense, right? Like if shame kind of, we'll get into this later, but shame kind of makes you want to hide and avoid. And so when we experience shame, it functions to like distance ourselves from other people. Yeah. And this is especially, I think, prevalent and also problematic if you have a particular fear of abandonment, which, you know, is the case for a lot of people. And it makes shame that much more common to experience and also that much harder to experience. Mm -hmm. It almost like makes the threshold lower, I think, for Mm -hmm. that. Because if you're scared somebody is going to reject you or abandon you, if that's kind of like your baseline, then you're going to be extra, extra careful not to say anything or do anything that's going to put you in a position where that could happen. So you yeah, you're in shame more frequently than the average person. That's such a great point. And, and, and you also might misinterpret situations that produce shame. And so it kind of becomes this vicious cycle of the more afraid you are to experience it, the more often you actually might experience it. And so mm-hmm. this is why we want to help you understand it today. It's also, I think maybe we've said this, I don't remember, but it's just a particularly um, unpleasant emotion for a lot of people. <laughs> it's really, I mean, ourselves included, it's, it's really tough to, to get through shame. And so it's, it's that much more important to work on it. Yeah. Yeah. I think the other situation that shame shows up, where sh- shame shows up is when you're kind of comparing yourself um, or some aspect of yourself to somebody else and feeling like you just not, you're not living up to that standard. Mm-hmm. Can happen yeah. a lot on social media. Oh yes, <laughs> absolutely. Um, okay. So those are some situations where shame might come up. Um, I think it is helpful to talk about why we experience shame and we didn't so much get into this last, last week. It's a really important point as unpleasant as it might be to experience certain emotions We experience all emotions for a reason, and that really starts with looking back at evolution, you know? So if we can think about a time when, I don't know, maybe a cheetah was running toward a human being, right? It was really important for that human being to develop the ability to feel fear, right, in order to activate this, what we now call fight, flight, or freeze response to not get killed. So really basic sense, fear stops you, stops us from getting killed. Of course we feel fear. Mm -hmm. And so similarly, shame protects us not from not getting killed, but it protects us from rejection. Mm -hmm. So we might feel shame preventatively before we even do something worthy of feeling shame to kind of signal to ourselves 
that you shouldn't do that thing because if you do, you're going to feel shame and then you're going to have to hide from other people. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, yeah. And sometimes that's really effective to not say something that you might've said or share something that you might've said because it would make you feel shame. Like that's actually, that's actually really helpful information that your mind and body is giving you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. That's true. It's not, it's sometimes you, you do have to kind of assess like, is this, is this, shame fitting the facts here mm-hmm. to determine whether, whether you should or should not share a certain detail about yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the problem with this is that sometimes we often, I would say, we distort in our minds the type of things we think others will reject us for, which makes yeah. us hide things that don't actually need to be hidden. And using some dialectical thinking here, That makes sense, most likely, because maybe, you know, this is a result of how others have treated us in the past, right? Maybe Mm -hmm. if in your early life, someone responded to you sharing your needs with rejection, then it makes sense that you would later learn to hide your needs, even when that might be the effective thing to do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So shame can kind of we can feel like people are going to reject us for something maybe more often than would actually be the case mm-hmm. based on our past experiences. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, just another quick example. A friend of mine was telling me about someone she knows who is a grandmother. And when her grandson was a toddler, he would you know, run into her arms every time they saw each other and just express so much love immediately. And now that he's a little older, you know, most kids, it's developmentally appropriate to not run into their grandmother's arms the second that they see each other. And she, because of her learning history, I would imagine, without knowing her too well, you know, has learned that, you know, expressing love or receiving love isn't something that she maybe is quote unquote worthy of. And I'm using that really in quotes because, um, you know, that's likely sort of the environment she grew up in. And so she immediately experiences shame when this happens, even though it really has nothing to do with her, um, that her grandson isn't jumping into her arms. And it causes problems for her. Like oftentimes she'll kind of yell at the people around her to kind of avoid the shame. And, you know, really it's a misinterpretation of an event. And it makes sense given the events of her life that have led to that moment. That's such a great example. And I think one that a lot of people can relate to, even if you think about like when you don't get a text back from somebody, how our, how, or or if somebody doesn't respond fast enough to us, you know, like our brains often make some kind of attribution or interpretation that can make it feel like it's about us when it in fact isn't. Mm -hmm. And that can lead us to feel shame when it's it's not warranted in the situation. And again, like you were saying, it makes sense, obviously, and um, it may not, may not fully fit the facts all the time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So similar to what we just did with fear, just again, to really get you in the practice of doing this um, on your own, let's go through the components of shame with maybe another example. So what might a prompting event for shame be? Um... Hmm. This is one, one that we've all done before is kind of 
maybe oversleeping, missing an appointment. Um, and let's just say for the sake of the example, it's because of something that you did the night before. So let's say you were like out late, you know, drinking or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Great example. So you kind of wake up in the morning, realize you missed the, your therapy appointment, let's say, and you have that immediate pit in your stomach. Okay. Yeah, so some interpretations, right? Might be I'm irresponsible, I'm worthless, I don't deserve therapy, I'm the worst person ever, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. And not surprisingly, if you're if those are the kind of the thoughts that you're having, you're like you said, you're going to have that pit in your stomach. You're probably going to want to hide or disappear because when you feel like you're worthless um, and not deserving it kind of just makes you want to crumble into a ball and not show your face. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Another urge that I can remember experiencing, particularly I'm just having a vivid memory of being in college and feeling shame and then having such a strong urge to avoid feeling that way that I would just busy myself for the entire day in order to like not be alone with myself. Have you ever had that? Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's, I feel like shame is one of those emotions that does that to us the most where mm -hmm. it's almost like a cue that you might be feeling shame when you notice yourself not being able to be alone with yourself. Yes. Listening to a podcast and then going to watch TV and calling a friend and then calling a family member. And that like, it's just like, okay, you're something's going on here. <laughs> yeah. I can, I can kind of remember. <laughs> I can kind of remember these days in college where I would, you know, immediately start hanging out with a friend when I felt shame. And then knowing the, that the friend had to leave, I would, even before the friend left, text another friend to make a plan and just like have these back-to-back -back <laughs> events, yeah. you know, hangs with friends lined up so that I didn't have to be alone with myself and my feelings. Exactly. Yeah. So certainly like trying to avoid shame is a very common urge that's associated with, with the feeling of shame. Yeah. Um, and then, and then kind of like in terms of the actual actions, you know, a lot of times we'll act on the action to withdraw or hide. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, if you feel ashamed because you missed your therapy appointment, you might not show up to therapy the next week. You might mm -hmm. decide you'd never want to see that therapist again, or yeah. you might ignore their calls and texts when they ask you if you're on your way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or if it's something, you know, with a friend or someone that you're maybe in a relationship with, you might delete the text conversation, you might block the person on social media just to kind of avoid thinking about it. Mm -hmm. I think one, 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 you know, thought that I want to share here too, that I found really helpful when I learned this is because I think a lot of people get guilt and shame confused and it's kind of like hard to tell those two apart. Yes. I have found that the easiest way to tell them apart is by noticing the action urge that you have. So for shame, we often want to withdraw or hide as a result of it. Again, because we're scared of getting rejected by people if we show our face to them, mm -hmm. show what we've done. Whereas guilt, it's almost the opposite. We feel bad about something we've done, but not about who we are as a person. Yeah. So instead, the action urge there is to repair. So we might apologize profusely, try to buy the person a gift, mm -hmm. you know, ask them if there's anything you can do. 
And so that would be more indicative of feeling guilt as opposed to shame. That is such an important distinction, especially as we build our playbooks and kind of decide what to do next, you know, as a result of the emotion that we're feeling, because as you said, those are opposite experiences. And likely if you kind of wronged a friend, it is really effective to feel guilty and then act on that guilt by repairing the relationship. Whereas avoiding that friend forever is probably less effective. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, okay. So now that we've kind of showed you all of the different components of shame, and of course it will look different depending on your playbook, but we were, we're giving this as an example. Now we want to kind of introduce this other concept, related concept about primary emotions versus secondary emotions. So let's take a second and try to explain that. Yeah. So essentially a primary emotion is adaptive and appropriate to the context, right? So if we went back to the fear example earlier in the episode, fear would be a primary emotion when being chased by a cheetah because it's appropriate to feel fear in a life-threatening situation. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And sometimes, you know, that initial or primary emotion can be really intense and uncomfortable or we may have been punished for expressing it in the past. And so in an effort to, so, so then we'll kind of like avoid that emotion as a result. And that's where, that's where secondary emotions really show up. Yeah, so a secondary emotion is basically your response to feeling the primary emotion. So again, like Molly said, when that primary emotion is too uncomfortable or when you maybe have judgments about your emotion. I shouldn't feel scared about a cheetah chasing me. What's wrong with me, right? Over time, a secondary emotion may develop. Um, And so maybe on top of feeling fear, you also feel something is wrong with you, which prompts shame. And maybe over time, you know, you'll see the cheetah chasing you and automatically feel shame and just kind of skip over that fear because Mm -hmm. of, you know, that sort of negative experience of feeling fear in the past. And this process really often happens quickly and can be outside of your awareness. And let's just kind of keep giving examples because I know that when I first learned this concept of primary versus secondary emotions, I was totally confused. So let's give a few more examples. Okay. So let's say you're driving. We've all, we've all been in this situation. Mm-hmm. You're driving, you make a left turn and you accidentally cut someone off and they start yelling at you and they give you the middle finger. So oftentimes our reaction to that is to give them the middle finger back, to mm-hmm. yell back, to get angry. Yeah. But I bet that if we could really slow time down and if you were really using your DBT skills, you could recognize that you actually probably felt some kind of embarrassment or shame as the primary emotion before that anger showed up as the secondary emotion. Yeah, and so this is really why we bring this concept up as we're helping you learn to identify your emotions. It's important to learn about secondary versus primary emotions because oftentimes we mistake our secondary emotion, which in this case is anger, and think it's kind of really what we're feeling. And so we respond to that, like giving someone the finger, like getting out of your car and yelling at that person, when actually what you're really feeling is shame. And so it would likely be more effective to respond to that shame. Mm -hmm. 
And it's, I think it makes a lot of sense why it's so much easier to feel anger than to feel shame, right? Like anger is a common secondary emotion that comes with shame when shame is the primary emotion because yeah, yelling at someone and giving them the middle finger is a lot easier to do than to sit with the feeling that you just made a mistake and could have caused a bad accident and everyone on the road saw you do it. Yeah, that's a really important point. It's also oftentimes more socially acceptable to express anger mm-hmm. than it is to express other emotions. And depending on what type of family you had growing up, I think a lot of families respond to anger, whereas maybe they don't respond to shame as as well. And so a lot of us, again, totally outside of our awareness, have really been conditioned to the moment we feel shame, just immediately go to anger because we've been punished in the past for expressing that shame. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's really important that we are able to identify what's the primary emotion here and what's the secondary emotion here. Because if you think about it, like let's say that you are, we'll give another analogy here. <laughs> let's say We're that you think- We're analogies today. <laughs> we are. It's helpful to understand because these are kind of complicated concepts. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so let's say you think you're in California, but really you're in Alabama mm-hmm. <laughs> and you're trying to get to the Grand Canyon. <laughs> you are not going to be able to find your way there because you're just starting from a place where you think you are that you're not actually. So we really yes. want to make sure that we know where we are so that we can get to where we're going. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So again, this is, this is the playbook. You need to know the emotion that you're feeling before you can decide what to do next. And so if you're labeling the wrong emotion, then you're really not going to, you know, then whatever you try is probably not going to work. And so we can try to practice this by applying mindfulness skills. So we can try to use the observe and describe mindfulness that we have drilled into your ears. And just to try to like observe and describe and notice non-judgmentally what you are feel what that primary emotion is. So if you're driving and you cut someone off, just try to let yourself feel that shame, even if it's uncomfortable. I find it to be really helpful when you can imagine yourself breathing into the part of your body that's experiencing the motion emotion and almost yeah. imagine your breath like making space for it so you can allow the feeling to kind of come in even if it's uncomfortable, which it probably will be if we're not used to feeling it. And then just use those mindfulness, observe and describe skills to kind of notice and name what you're feeling. Yeah, I, I love that as a, as a roadmap and I hope that we can all try that this week. Um, another way to you know, illustrate primary versus secondary emotions that I think is a really important example because it kind of highlights another function of these general emotion regulation skills that we're teaching you. I think we forgot to mention this last week. One of the reasons that it's important and useful to regulate your emotions, it's not just to make you feel better, it's also to help you act more effectively in relationships and you know, honestly as a member of society. So that's what this example is, is relevant for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm glad that you said that. And I think it's really relevant right now because there may be no better example of this than what tends to happen with shame and white fragility, which is certainly not a concept that we can credit DBT with. 
um, and it's extremely relevant to this discussion about awareness of shame as a way to regulate emotions um, and act effectively in relationships and as a member of society. Yeah, so we heard the term white fragility in Layla Saad's work through her Me and My White Supremacy workbook, which you know, we've, we have found to be an extremely useful tool for increasing awareness in order to act more effectively in anti-racism work. So pretty relevant to a lot of this conversation. And White Fragility is also the name of the book by Robin D'Angelo. Yeah. So yeah, if we think about the components of shame, when we're, you know, let's say we say something intentionally or unintentionally that's hurtful to another person or racist, and somebody calls you out for that. Mm -hmm. The experience of feeling shame is actually quite adaptive because we hope that it would prevent us from doing that same thing again in the future. Yeah, that's, that's such an important point. And, you know, that's, that's if you're experiencing the primary emotion of shame. However, it's also common that if the primary emotion of shame quickly shifts to a secondary emotion, which, you know, for a lot of people might be anger, the urge and then the associated action with that urge might be to yell, it might be to defend ourselves or take some other action that's, you know, really ineffective in terms of um, working toward racial justice in general and just individually, you know, that person's experience of what you said and our relationship with that person, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's really not effective to act on that action urge. You know, the steps are to do this work in advance, right? Become familiar with the component parts of shame, become familiar with the concept that anger might be the secondary emotion when shame shows up so that you become aware of your own playbook. We all, be, you know, we as white people become aware of, of our playbook so that we don't act impulsively in the moment. Um, and then what to do next, we are, you know, what, what to do next after you notice that urge to avoid or to withdraw or maybe to yell or speak defensively. We are gonna get into that in the coming weeks. So this example is gonna carry us over because it's so important not only to notice the shame, but then to, decide what to do in the moment in order to regulate your emotions so that you can act more effectively. Mm -hmm. Stay tuned. Yes, stay tuned. Um, we will definitely continue this, this conversation. So to end our episode today, we wanted to do something a little different than we usually do. I know normally we do the coaching and today we figured we're going to play a little game, I guess you could call it. Yeah. <laughs> Let's call it a game, <laughs> a nerdy DBT game. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry for that judgment. Um, okay, so today we're going to play a game called Mythbusters. Yes. So one of us is going to kind of throw out a myth or kind of a misunderstanding that's common about emotions, and then we're going to talk about why that's actually a myth or not a myth. Okay. So the first myth... Um, we're not a myth. <laughs> the first one that I've heard from various clients and people is that emotions should always be trusted. You should always kind of go with your gut. What do you think about that? 
I think it feels, it feels true, but it's not. Mm -hmm. And it feels true, I think, because we've been told that a lot throughout our lives. You know, I feel like as a kid, you're taught, you know, trust your gut. It's so important. Yeah. Sometimes it can be extremely, like sometimes when you're in a situation that's dangerous, you have a gut reaction and it's extremely effective. Yeah. You know, if, to, to act on that gut reaction. But sometimes I think um, it's, it can be more complicated than that um, when there's more thoughts involved. And so, yes, we don't always want to respond immediately to our gut reactions. They might not always be the most effective to act on. I have an example of this actually that I just thought of. Okay. So I remember as a kid, I once heard a story about someone who woke up one morning and they had a flight scheduled and they just had this feeling in their gut to not get on the plane that something was amiss, you know? Mm -hmm. And so they didn't show up to the airport and then later found out that the plane had crashed. Oh my gosh. Okay. Wonderful that this person trusted their gut. And I heard that story and I remember every time that I had a flight scheduled <laughs> for the next several years, I would have a quote unquote gut feeling that the plane was going to crash and then, I would, did. and then I would not want to get on the plane and I needed to use opposite action as we'll discuss in the next couple of weeks to kind of force myself to do it anyway, right? And I think that's such a good example of how sometimes it's not actually your gut that's talking. It's something else. It's some thought, it's some fear. Um, and learning to distinguish between the two is, is difficult. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great example. I've also been so wrong so many times with my gut, gut um, reaction to people. Sometimes I'll, you know, meet someone and think like, oh, that's not somebody that I'm going to be friends with. And that's my gut reaction. And it's just been wrong mm -hmm. more times than it's been right. And so, yeah. yeah. Again, I, I, would imagine, I would imagine that has more to do with, you know, your, your thoughts, maybe anxiety around meeting that person, like more to do with you than it actually has to do with that person. Mm -hmm. So I think what we're, I guess what we're saying is that like, when there's a history behind something or when there's kind of like more thoughts and interpretations involved, oftentimes it's more complicated than just go with your gut. And next week we're going to teach you, or in the next couple episodes, we're going to teach you how to actually kind of check the facts to see if what you're feeling is, is kind of reasonable given, given the context. So mm -hmm. stay tuned for, for more on how to actually make that distinction. So let's talk about this other potential myth that anger is always a secondary emotion. I've heard people say that before. I've heard a lot of therapists say that before, actually. And I think there's a lot of merit to it. And do you think it's always a secondary emotion? Yeah, I've heard therapists say this before, too. And it honestly confused me for a long time. But I don't think that anger is always a secondary emotion. I don't think it would be an emotion that animals experience if it was a secondary emotion only mm. because secondary emotions are manufactured as a result of our thoughts right. but my dogs get angry like that's, there's some evolutionary reason why we experience anger that's so interesting yeah i i think we at least in dbt think about anger as the as the primary emotion when a goal is blocked 
So, you know, a lot of people talk about feeling angry when they feel invalidated or if they don't feel heard in a meeting or in a, you know, in a conversation with someone that's close to them because your goal is to feel heard. And so when you don't and your goal is blocked, it kind of makes sense to feel angry, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, I think it's, it's, it can definitely be kind of like both that primary or secondary I think Oftentimes when it is a secondary emotion, um, like we've been talking about, you know, it can often be like more socially acceptable for someone to, to express anger. And right. so it can show up as instead of let's say fear. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also really effective at pushing people away. So if you want to get someone off your back, express anger. Mm-hmm. We learn to express anger when, and you know, and then you might kind of out of your awareness, want people to stop pushing you to do something. And so you express that anger and that is a secondary emotion. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think that's, that's a helpful, that's a helpful way to kind of wrap that up because it seems like what we're saying is that anger is often, is often a secondary emotion for a lot of people. So just sort of be on high alert when you're experiencing anger, like, is this anger or is this actually something else? Mm-hmm. And because we're all different people and we've all had different life experiences and we all have different, you know, biological sensitivities, it, it might be, it might be the primary emotion, but just sort of be, be on high alert, I think, when anger mm-hmm. shows up. I agree with that. All right. What about the, what, the, the thought that if others don't approve of my feelings, then I shouldn't feel the way that I do? Whew, this is a big one. This is, this is one that comes up so often, you know, not only in therapy, but in life. Um, it's a, it's a really leads to self-judgments. I shouldn't be feeling this way because not only do I think I shouldn't be feeling this way, but people in my life are making me feel like I shouldn't be feeling this way. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say it's a myth. How, how about you? <laughs> I feel like as I have gone on in my training in this field, I have understood less and less what the word should even means. Yes, I agree. Um, when you say I shouldn't be feeling the way I do, I don't need, I don't know what that means because who's to say what you should or shouldn't be feeling, mm-hmm. you know, you are feeling what you're feeling. Yeah. So regardless of what other people, whether other people understand or approve of your feelings, that's how you feel. And there's nothing you can do about the way that you feel. Mm-hmm. And there's also nothing that the other person can do about the way that you feel like you can control your reaction to your feelings, but not yes. the feelings themselves. So yeah, yeah. That, that's, that's a really important point in the context of emotion regulation because it can seem very action oriented, right? Like do this thing to feel better, do this thing to change the situation. And all that means is what you just said, you can control your reaction, but when that immediate, you know, emotion pops in, when the, when that prompting event happens and you feel that fear, you feel that anger, you feel that shame, there is, nothing to be done about the fact that you feel that way in the first place. All you can do is control what happens next. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think if you, if you do believe that, you know, if other people don't approve of my feelings and I shouldn't feel the way that I do, if that's something that, that you feel, 
it, it's likely a result of a history of kind of invalidation, yes. um, which is something that we're going to, we hope to do a future episode on and kind of devote the whole episode to it because it's such an important uh, concept in terms of borderline personality disorder, as well as just kind of regulating emotions in general and learning how to validate ourselves, especially if we haven't grown up in a validating environment. So stay tuned for, for, a, for a full episode on that. Yeah, absolutely. And then finally, let's just let's quickly talk about this next one, which I think is, is a good way to, to end it. Um, all right. Last myth or non-myth. Um, there is something wrong with me if I am very sensitive and emotional. What do you think about that one? I guess all of these are myths. <laughs> Could you imagine if at the end of all of this, we said, yes, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> I think it's probably become clear by now that we don't think there's something wrong with you if you are sensitive and emotional. In fact, you know, in many ways, though it can cause problems if you, you know, react impulsively or in a way that isn't in line with your goals in life, um, I think there are so many positive things about being emotionally sensitive. And I feel like I've really come to embrace that over the years. Mm -hmm. And it's really important to talk about. I agree. I, I definitely would consider my, someone who, myself someone who's more sensitive and yeah. emotional, I guess. And so it's, I think the positive sides of that, I think there's a lot. Yeah. Um, but for a lot of people, I think you kind of pick up on things in the environment and tend to be, can be very intuitive. I know a lot of people are very creative that are also more sensitive. Yeah. So there's, yeah. there's certainly a lot right with you if you're, <laughs> if you're sensitive and emotional. Yeah, I agree. I, I remember we talked about this with Madison where she said that a lot of, she feels like a lot of her teen teenager clients who are more emotionally sensitive are just so tend to just be so empathetic and that, you know, she can see them being therapists in the future because mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's, it can be so nice to be around. So supportive and, you know, yeah, we just want to, we just want to end with that, that we, we see lots of positive, lots of positives about tending to be more um, sensitive and emotional. Mm -hmm. And we hope that this episode and the coming episodes can help you learn to work with that because I know it can also be painful to be emotionally sensitive. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, so this week, Molly and I are assigning ourselves the task of paying attention to when secondary emotions may be showing up instead of primary emotions. Again, so that we can better learn our own playbooks and when to start and where to start. So we hope that you'll do this practice along with us. Yes, and until next week, stay skillful, everyone.